0: You may be seated. You have your Bibles this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 9, continuing our series through the book of Mark, picking up in verse 14 and going through verse 29. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14 and going through verse 29. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. I command you come out of him and never enter him again. from the machine. Got out of the machine. It's a phrase that's used most often in stories, narratives, movies. When the conflict is somehow solved too simply. It's not seen to be a good thing if that's a, a, a problem that is uh, made with your story. You watched for two hours. You had all these questions about how the heroes were going to win. How were they going to pull this off? They were out of options. There was basically no hope left. They were completely outmatched. And then Neo becomes the one and everything's magically fixed. It feels cheap. It feels too easy. We call it God from the machine. And the reason they call it that, the reason they say it feels too cheap and too easy, is because it's based on the assumption that if God were to clearly intervene in any situation, God shows up out of the woodwork at the end. Not only would everything immediately be made right, but you wouldn't have to worry about how you got there. Nothing that came before seems to matter anymore. How everything is solved doesn't make any difference. God showed up. That's how. In our text today, Christ shows up. We covered last week how he went up on the mountain, he was transfigured, he was revealed in all his glory, and they were able to see him clearly for who he actually is. And now, today, he comes back down the mountain into chaos, into a terrible situation, into a a host of problems. But when he shows up, when he arrives, everything is fixed. It's like it was magic. It's a deus ex machina. Jesus shows up out of nowhere, and everything is solved. From our text today, we can see that there are five spiritual problems that Christ solves in our story, in this situation. He solves five spiritual problems in the lives of these people. First of all, he solves the problem of interpersonal conflict. Look at the first couple of verses there in our text. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Remember the context here. Jesus, Peter, James, and John had just gone up on the mountain. They had seen Jesus revealed in all his glory. He was transfigured, dazzlingly white before them. They saw Elijah and Moses. They heard God's voice out of the cloud telling them that this is his son. This is the Christ. He's the one that they should listen to. And then they come back down the mountain. And what greets them? An argument. They had had an experience of a spiritual high beyond anything that anyone in this room has ever seen. They felt good. They were pumped. They were excited to go down the mountain and take on the world with the Christ that they had known who he was. They had seen him in all his glory. They had full confidence and full faith in who he is and what he was going to do. And what welcomes them upon their return? An argument. They came back into a fight between the scribes and the other disciples who hadn't gone up the mountain. An argument that they've heard so many times already throughout the book of Mark. We've seen it over and over. The scribes show up, they fight with the disciples, then they leave. They come back down and they're let down by the reality that they saw. What a letdown that must have been. They're shocked back into the reality and reminded that the glory that they just saw is so different from the world that they tend to inhabit from the world they now see, the world they daily experience. And I think when that happens, God most often allows that kind of contrast, that kind of jolt back into reality, because he wants us to remember that this world is not our home. C.S. Lewis, writing in Mere Christianity, said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable desire, the most probable explanation— is that I was made for another world. And we were made for another world. This isn't our home. When the reality of the fall and the pattern of your life looks like a spiritual letdown, when you come down from the mountain into a silly argument, remember that one day those kind of letdowns won't exist anymore. One day you'll go up on the mountain and you'll stay there. Heaven is the one thing in life that is going to absolutely live up to the height. Jesus comes down the the mountain and walks into a problem with the people who oppose us. Interpersonal conflict is a reality that we have to learn to deal with in our world. I personally am a very conflict-averse person. I don't like it. I would love to avoid it if I possibly could. There's just something about it that makes me uncomfortable. I start to sweat when I feel like people start to get mad at me. But when we live in a fallen world, when we live in the world that we live in, Conflict ultimately can't be avoided. It has to be confronted. It has to be managed. We are going to face opposition in our lives. But what we have to recognize is that personal conflict always has a spiritual basis. We don't just fight with the people around us. We navigate spiritual differences among the people that we are living our lives with. We don't know the fullness of the argument here in this story. We don't know exactly what they were arguing about. We don't know how heated it was, how long it went on. We don't know what the positions were that both sides took. What we do know is that there was an argument, and then magically there wasn't. What changed? What ended the argument here? Well, Jesus showed up. They were arguing in verse 14 and 15, When Jesus comes down the mountain, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. The crowd stopped focusing on the discouraging arguments when Jesus showed up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Now that he had shown up, now that he was on the scene, the letdowns of their reality, the arguments that they were experiencing just didn't seem to matter anymore because they had the presence of God. Notice that the scribes are never mentioned again throughout the rest of our text. We're introduced to this story by an argument between the scribes and the disciples. You would think that that's how we're going to deal with the rest of the story as we go on, but the scribes never show back up. Not in this passage, at least. Once Jesus showed up, The arguments, the focus, shifted completely to him and to his miracle. We never go back to that conflict with the scribes. Because you see, when the Spirit is actively at work in a place, it's often hard to continue having a problem with the people around you. It's often hard to continue having the same conflict, the same problems, the same squabbles over and over and over again. Because you have the presence of God with you. How petty does so much of our squabbling seem in light of who he is and what he's done? I have not been a pastor for that long. It's been almost a year now. But I've been told, and I think it's probably true, that the people who are most unhappy in a church, the people who tend to cause the most problems in a church, are usually the ones who show up the least. They're usually the ones who pop in every once in a while, say that looks different, and then they leave. They're not the ones serving. They're not the ones loving. They're not the ones helping. They're not the ones worshiping consistently. And I honestly think that this is why that's the case. When you're routinely in the presence of God, worshiping him, seeing Christ clearly, when he shows up, all that other stuff just seems to not matter anymore. When we're able to see him as he truly is, all our problems, all our conflicts just start to fall away. Everything else just no longer matters because Christ solves interpersonal conflict in our text. He also solves the problem of spiritual warfare. That's the second problem he solves in our text this morning. The problem of spiritual warfare. We'll bounce around a little bit on this one. He solves the problem of the spiritual opposition that they saw in verses 17 and 18. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were unable. You see, the son in this story, the father in this story, faced a spiritual opposition. The son had a demon. They are real. I, more than maybe anyone I know, tend to downplay the spiritual aspect of everything that I encounter in my life. If you were to walk up and say, man, I'm really being oppressed by demons, I would say, you probably just happened to be late this morning. That flat tire was due to a screw in the road. It wasn't due to the devil giving you a flat tire. And I think that may oftentimes be true. But I think that some of that's my own problem, failing to see the spiritual realities that uh, we deal with in our day-to-day lives. The boy had a demon. We can't allow ourselves to go through our lives as if these mere molecules that we interact with are all that there is. Spiritual warfare, spiritual opposition, is absolutely real. Ephesians 6.12 For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We should all, myself included, have a certain level of sensitivity to spiritual opposition in our lives because we don't merely deal with the natural, but we deal with the supernatural. That was the problem that Jesus saw when he arrived, but he solved it through a higher power. Look at what he does here. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus called the demon out of the boy with just a word. He powerfully, authoritatively spoke, and the demon had no possible choice but to obey because Jesus, the Christ, has the highest power. He has power over all the evil powers in this world. No demon afflicts, no power persecutes, and no devil accuses outside of the sovereignty and the power of Jesus Christ. And because that's true, we have no need to fear. We have no cause to be afraid. I think and hope that that's why I downplay the spiritual matters so much, because we have no need to fear them. Any spiritual force that we encounter is not any more powerful than the Christ we already have. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, "I have seen. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart." I have overcome the world. There's no power in the world that he has not overcome. So those of us who are united to him have had all of our spiritual problems solved. All of our spiritual opposition falls away in light of his higher power. In addition to that spiritual warfare which Christ solves, he also solves the problem of the spiritual leaders in this text. Again, we'll bounce around again. He solves the problem of the spiritual leaders. You see, the disciples in this story were powerless to help the boy. Look at verse 18. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. They tried. They failed. They couldn't do it. Ultimately, his disciples were inadequate. Because the problem with his disciples is that they weren't Jesus. They weren't God. They didn't have the power he does. They didn't have the authority he does. They weren't able to do what he can do. Jared Wilson, a friend of mine, once tweeted that when speaking at a conference, someone walked up and asked, you're the preacher? He said, yeah. And the guy said, "Uh, so you're the guy with all the answers. And Jared smiled and said, nope. I'm the guy who points to that guy. That's what we do. Those of us who are your spiritual leaders, what we do is we point to the one who has all the answers. We point to the one who has all the power. We point to the one who can solve every problem that you face in your life. Because we can't do it. We don't have that kind of power. Those in charge of us are going to fail us. Our earthly spiritual leaders are absolutely inadequate to solve all of our spiritual problems. I, as your pastor... Will fail you. For some of you, I probably already have. It's been less than a year, and I have probably already failed a lot of the people in this room. And I'm sorry for that. I didn't do it on purpose. But I'm inadequate. You've asked me a question, and I didn't know the answer. You showed up on Sunday, and I happened not to say hi to you. You think some of the changes that have been made since I have been here are maybe the dumbest decisions you've ever seen in your entire life. And maybe they are. Because I am inadequate. Your deacons, who love you and serve you well, will fail you. For some of you, they probably already have. They've been here a lot longer than I have. In fact, I promise you, they have failed you in some way. You were sick and they didn't visit you, you're a widow and they haven't comforted you. They made the wrong call, they said the wrong thing. They are inadequate. But there's one who's not. There's one who isn't. There's one who's the true head of the church, the true leader of the church. And he is not only not inadequate, he is not only not merely adequate, he will never fail. His name is Jesus. The man's problems weren't fixed until he came to Jesus. In fact, he only dealt with the disciples because the disciples were in his way trying to get to Jesus. Jesus. He would have loved to have just walked up and had Jesus, but he had to settle for the disciples while he had them. He brought his son to Jesus for healing, not the disciples. Look at verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you. That was his goal. He wanted the one who could help him, the only one who could help. Look at verse 22. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. How glorious is it that he actually has access to the one who can heal his son? His son has a demon, and here's the one who can get rid of the demon, the one who can cast it out of him. He can just walk right up to him. There's one just walking around with the power to call a demon out of him, and all he has to do is just walk up and say, can you help us? He's the one who has all the power. He won't ever fail. So then he helps him. Christian, non-Christian, call upon the one that you have access to. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have the same access to that same one who can help in the same way. Draw near with confidence to the one who is drawn near to you, You have the same access right now to that same God right now that the man spoke to in our text. So call upon him. Ask him. He, unlike everyone else that you meet, is not going to look over your shoulder as you're talking to him. He's not going to look at his watch as you're talking to him. He's going to look in your eyes. He's going to deal with you personally, compassionately. And he is the one who can help. He has the power and the willingness, the desire to actually do something. You may not receive a miraculous healing of the body, but if you ask, you certainly will receive a miraculous healing of the soul. So don't trust in anyone but Christ, because he's the one who will never fail. Verses 28 and 29, the disciples are confused. They said, I I thought we had this. You gave us this power uh, back in, like, chapter 3. I thought we knew what we were doing. Why couldn't we do this? And he says, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. He's saying, no, you guys thought that you could do it. That's the problem. You can't do this. You have to pray. He's the one who does it. You're not the one who has that power. He does. You only are the instrument through which he has decided to use his power. So pray. Don't trust in anyone but Christ. He's the only one who will never fail. He says all the right things. He makes all the right calls. He visits everyone who is sick. Your inadequate earthly leaders will fail you, but Jesus never will. Don't settle for the disciples when you have access to Jesus. Don't put all your hope and trust in me to be perfect for your faith to endure because I'm not. Don't put that on your deacons either because we can't bear that weight. But Christ can. He is the one who solves the problems of all of our inadequacies. He also solves the problem of our troubled past. It's the fourth problem he solves in our text today. The problem of our troubled past. We can often be haunted by our past, as the boy was. Look at verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. The boy had these issues almost his entire life. From childhood, he had been cast into fire and into water by the demon to destroy him. The life that he now lived, he would live in fear and pain. A nightmare that he has to experience for a long time, now and forever. It just won't seem to ever end. And for some of us, we've probably experienced a similar trauma in our lives. Something that feels like it's a pain that's never going to be healed. Statistics would say in a room this size that we have several people who have been hurt by sexual abuse in their lives. And you may still be struggling with that trauma. You may be feeling like you carry it with you all the time, like it's a dark cloud hanging over you, like you'll never be healed. For all of us in this room, I know our sinful past will occasionally cause us to wallow in guilt or despair. I know that. There are nights when I lie awake and I stare at my ceiling and I remember the mistakes that I've made in my life. The sins I've committed in my life. A phrase, an image, a place pops in my head and I start to spiral. I'm thinking, who am I to stand up before these people every week and tell them about the gospel? Tell them about the God who can save them. Tell them to pursue holiness. Who am I to do that after all the times that I have ignored all of that? All the times I've failed in every aspect of that pursuit. See, we're often haunted by our past, the things done to us and the things we've done to others. But Jesus solves that problem. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The boy wasn't only healed in the present, he was sealed for the future. From the instant the demon came out of him, it no longer mattered how many times had he cast him into the fire, how many times had he cast him into the water, how many times had it tried to destroy him. The pain, the suffering, day after day, night after night that he had experienced, all of that didn't matter anymore. Because the demon was gone and it wasn't coming back. He was no longer afflicted by his past troubles, and he never would be again. The scars from the fire, the memories of the pain, they may not have gone away. But they had certainly been superseded by the hope and promise of the future that now lay before him. Of the life that he now had right in front of him. The same one who spoke the stars into existence had also said the demon would leave and never return. That's how sure it was. That's how secure the promise was. You see, when Christ saves you, he saves you from everything and forever. Not only does he remove the pains and troubles of the past, but he replaces them with an undeserved present, a glorious future. Not only are we presently saved in him, but we're promised a glorious future in him. He solved the problem of our haunting past, mired in sin. Whatever's been done to us, though we may still carry it, we know there's a day that we won't. Wherever we've done, though we may still carry it, we know there's a day that we won't. He solves that problem when he shows up. When he appears, he's the one who does it. The final final problem that Christ solves in our text this morning is the problem of death. It's the fifth and final problem this morning. The problem of death. Look at verse 26. He solves the stench of death. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. The boy seemed dead. He had no life in him. The removal of his problems resulted in death, or so it seemed. While it looked like his problem was that he had a demon, his real problem was that he had no life. He looked like a corpse. The demon was giving him the appearance of life. When it was gone, what we saw was the reality that it seems like this guy doesn't have any life in him. You see, we may think that our biggest problem is what happens to us, or the mistakes that we've made, or the people we encounter, the problems of the people that we have over us. But these are only symptoms of our real problem. They're peripheral branches on the sequoia tree of our sinful nature. Our all-encompassing problem is sin which can and does only lead to death. You see, this isn't ultimately a sermon about adjusting your expectations in life so that you feel content. It's not ultimately a sermon about fixing the interpersonal conflicts so that you can get along with people. It's not ultimately about staring down your personal demons so that you can find some self-actualization out there. It's not about hedging the bets of your leaders so the next time I mess up, I can say, well, I told you I would. I promised you I would. And then I can just move on. It's not a sermon about overcoming our own past sins, about being a better person, about living a better life. This sermon is ultimately about the God who solves the problems of his people by bringing them from death to life in him. That's what he does. That's who he is. He brought the boy from death to life. Without that, what difference does the rest of the text make? We have to remember that sin is our problem. If that problem isn't solved, it allows, is is solved, it allows all the other problems to be solved. But if it isn't, nothing else really matters. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but then to lose a soul? What does it profit you if all your earthly problems are solved? If you live a life of ease and comfort, riches in your sin before dying apart from Christ? What good does that do you? Jesus came to solve the biggest problem of his people. And in solving that problem, he would eventually solve every problem. Look at verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he rose. You see, Jesus wasn't content until the boy had new life. He wasn't content merely stopping the conflict, merely showing them that their leaders were inadequate, merely getting rid of the demon that he had. He wasn't content until the boy had been raised to new life. He stopped the arguing, defeated the demon without a struggle, filled the gaps left by his disciples, resolved the problems of all the boy's past, but he wasn't finished until the boy was alive. And I think we'll all agree, without the last step, what good are the rest of them? If he did everything else, but then left the boy in his death, I don't know if that story makes scripture. I don't know if I'm preaching about that this morning. But he raised him to life. That was the ultimate goal that he had. Jesus healed him and showed us that without him, we are dead. But he can and will raise us to new life. That's how he solves the problem of death. He defeats it with his life. He solves the problem of death with his resurrected life. But how does he do this? How does he give this new life? How does he solve these problems in this text? All of it is applied to you and brought about ultimately by your belief. Every victory, every promise that Jesus has won and fulfilled was through his person and his work. He is the son of God who came as a man, lived the perfect life, died in your place, rose to life, and ascended to heaven. And that work that he did in his person is applied to you through faith, through belief. We can see that truth in our text repeatedly. Jesus admonished the people for their lack of faith in verse 19. Without the man's belief, the demon wasn't going to go anywhere, verses 22 and 23. His work is completed for you, and he gives you the gift of faith, which is necessary for his work to be applied to you he gives that faith. And lucky for us, a perfect faith is not what he requires. It's not ultimately up to you. Look at verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, "I believe; help my unbelief." The man had just a little faith, an imperfect faith. In that same story in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this to his disciples afterward, in Matthew 17:20. He says to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You see, he didn't need a gargantuan faith. He didn't need a monumental, enormous, perfectly large faith. Just the smallest inkling was enough. Because your faith is only as good as what you believed in. Your faith is only as good as where you've placed it. And when you believe in an infinite God, any faith is enough. An imperfect faith is enough. And that's what the man had. But Christ still accepted it. I preached on this same idea a few weeks ago in our Welcome to Church series that uh, when we walked through the text behind our call to worship that we read every week, even an imperfect faith, Christ will still solve. Christ will still accept. Christ will make perfect. I'm not going to spend much time here belaboring that because I've already preached on it so recently. But I wanted to share with you this quote from Richard Sibbs in the Bruce Reed. He said, As a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ, most mercifully inclined to the weakest. The weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters. The consciousness of the church's weakness makes her willing to lean on her beloved and to hide herself under his wing." The weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters. The weakest faith can be placed in the strongest Christ. The man had an imperfect faith, but because it was placed in the perfect Christ, it worked nonetheless. And it can work for you. Christ can solve your problems, sure. He can solve the conflict. He can fill any gaps left by your inadequate spiritual leaders. He can get rid of any spiritual opposition you face. He can get rid of any trauma from your past that you face. He can do those things, absolutely. But most urgently, Christ can solve the problem of your sin and your pending death. And he solves it through your belief in who he is and what he's done. That's how he solves our problems. Ultimately and finally, there will be a day when every problem gets solved in Christ. And those problems are solved for those who believe that he has solved them already in his person and in his work. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to come together with your people, to hear your word, to sing your praise, to pray, to confess sin, to repent, to give you thanks for that salvation. Thank you for solving the spiritual problems that we face. Thank you for being the one who when you show up everything else seems to fall away. Whatever conflicts we might have you can solve them. Whatever spiritual opposition we face you're more powerful. Whatever sins we've committed in the past you can wipe them out. Whatever problems our leaders might have you can fill those gaps. And whatever death we're facing you can give us new life. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us and in us. Let us remember that today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Alone as our song of response this morning, thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to see you more clearly. Thank you for sending your son to do the work that you sent him to do. Thank you for the work he's accomplished for us, in our place, on our behalf. Thank you for the perfect life, sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, and the glorious ascension of Jesus. Let us hope and trust in who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And know that if we respond to that through repentance and faith, we can be saved just as Christ came to do. Let us see you clearly, not only today, but every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.